Well, it's good to have you here, whether you're in the room or online on this beautiful June day. And those of you online, I hope it's more summer than it is here, wherever you are, because it's like rainy and 58 degrees here. But it's a good day to be together. Uh, Today, we are wrapping up this series on Psalms for the last eight weeks. It was supposed to be a six-week series, but I extended it looking at selective psalms. And the book of Psalms was originally a song book. It was the hymnal, the Jewish hymnal that was used uh, to sing these songs. And when you think about songs and musicians, I don't know, there's zero scientific um, data or research that has gone into this, but it seems like in my lifetime, like there's maybe a connection between musicians and their names. And it seems to me like there's a disproportionate amount of musicians in my lifetime named David. I mean, let me just take you back. Some of you will remember this. Davy Jones from the Monkees, Daydream Believer. Okay. And, and all you ladies over 60, you know you had David Cassidy's poster on your wall. You know that, Partridge family, there he was, I think I love you, so what am I so afraid of? You got that right out of Team Beat, or Tiger Beat in the Team Magazine. I know you did. David Gates and Bread, that was like the dating album. You know, if a picture paints a thousand words, then why can't I paint you? Apparently you guys didn't listen to music in the 70s. David Soul of Starsky and Hutch, don't give up on us, baby. David Hasselhoff. I mean, he was big in Germany. And so you say, I didn't listen to all that pop music or whatever. Okay, okay, okay. David Bowie? Oh, oh now I got the genre. And suddenly everyone wakes up, okay? D- David uh, Crosby, Sills. David Crosby? Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young? Uh, all those, okay, got one. This is not going well at, at all. Uh, all of these, these, these Davids, uh, David Gilmore, Pink Floyd. Okay, David Lee Roth. Okay, then, okay, now we're going. Okay, David Lee Roth was there. Uh, David Coverdale, yeah. all right, from Deep Purple and, and from um, White Snake. Uh, David Evans. <laughs> okay, you know him as Edge or The Edge from U2. His name is David. David Evans. Dave. Dave Grohl, Foo Fighters. Okay, there, now we're going. Okay, now, uh, or um, Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction. You guys were allowed to listen to that stuff. Okay. And our favorite Dave from South Africa comes to Washington every year on Labor Day. Dave Matthews. Okay. But all of them pale in comparison to the artist simply known as David. No last name, just David. Now he's known as the son of Jesse. He's known as the king, but he's David. Unmistakably, this musician is David. Unmistakable in the the Bible as David. Just David. Like in the Bible, if you talk about Joseph, you have six or seven different Josephs to choose from. You use the name Mary, you've got like 28 to choose from. But you say the name David, there's only one. And David was this musician extraordinaire, even as a young man, probably when he was about 15 or 16 years of age. He was employed in the palace playing his instrument, his harp, for King Saul, the king. Now, some of you are aware Saul had some issues, some emotional, possibly mental, maybe some spiritual issues. He would spike and he would spiral and he'd get out of control. And we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul. 
he would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. There was something about the way David played the harp that brought about this spiritual transformation for Saul. And I think I know what it is because I've heard there's a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor falls, the major lifts. And the baffled king composes, hallelujah. Now, it's not just his harp playing. In Islam, Muslims believe that, that, that for, for their, in their writings, that Allah gave the most beautiful voice of all humanity to David. In Judaism and in Christianity, the songs that he wrote made their way into the very scriptures, the very holy texts, the Tanakh and the Bible, our Old Testament, the book of Psalms, these Psalms that he wrote. And he wrote at least 73 in the book of Psalms. 73 are attributed to him. And there's others that are anonymous that may have been written by him. And how about this? Talk about, I write the songs that make the whole world sing. The shelf life of the songs that he wrote. 3,000 years later, people are still memorizing, singing, being moved by these lyrics that he wrote. These songs, and think about this, to have Jesus himself go to the temple and sing a song written by you, I and mean, that's got to be pretty cool. And David wrote those songs. He was a composer extraordinaire of these songs. Listen, there's, there's a lot of things that I can do moderately okay with a passing grade. There's a few things I can do well. One thing I cannot do, I cannot write a song. I am not a songwriter. And the couple of attempts that I've made, I'm telling you what, it would be so embarrassing for me to have you hear what I tried when I tried to write a song a couple of occasions. I just, if you said, Bob, you either play that song or you resign, I'm done today. <laughs> it's that bad. I mean, I just cannot write a song. And in my mind, it doesn't make sense. This should be so simple. A song's maybe, what, four minutes long? Every week I write a sermon that's 40-ish minutes long. How hard would it be to write something four minutes long and the chorus you're going to repeat three times and once more after the bridge and then repeat and fade on the way out? So you only have to do that a little bit. How hard could it be to write a song? And on top of that, while I'm on the issue, you write a four-minute song. You sing it over and over again, week after week. In here, I love that song. I spend all week working on a 40-minute sermon. If I preached a sermon twice, oh, why don't we get reruns? What do you do all week? Well, we can sing the same song over and over again and love it. Well, I hear one story twice. Don't you have any new material? I'm not bitter. I'm just getting this off my chest. <laughs> but I cannot write songs. And I'm not the only one. When I was in college and early in my youth ministry days, we would do these youth camps, and every week on Thursday night, we would have like a talent night where teams and, and cabins would do skits, and inevitably, there would be one student that would get up behind a guitar or a piano and in great nervousness say, I want to sing a song that I wrote, and the Lord gave me this song, and they would sing that song, and at the end of it, you say, and don't blame that on God. I mean, really... If God gave that to you, that was just for you, not for us. <laughs> I can't write songs. You know, we have people on our staff that can write songs. Ron Pye, our worship director, he writes songs. He writes great songs. We love to sing those songs over and over again. Not sermons, but songs. They're great. Uriah Garay, our, our, our next gym pastor, he writes songs that we sing over and over. Great so I was talking to Ron, and I asked him about how is it, you know, what's the inspiration? How do you write a song? Not because I'm going to try, because I cannot and he was just telling me about, sometimes it's, a, it's a, just a you know, musical riff that you get started on, or maybe even you hear someone pray and it sparks an idea or a truth out of the Bible or a verse, and then sometimes it comes out of a life situation. 
that you're going through something in life, good or bad, and it just brings about the inspiration for a song. And I honestly believe that the, a lot of the psalms that David wrote were just that. It came out of his life, out of an experience. I, I've told you that in some of the, the preambles before some of the psalms, they will tell you what the context was, what had happened, what, what was going on when this psalm was written. And as I was thinking about wrapping up this series, I thought, what psalm do I want to end on? What do I want to be the closing psalm that, because there's so many to choose from, that we only had eight weeks and there's 150 to choose from. I thought, which one? And then I got this, what I thought was a brilliant idea, maybe the worst idea ever, but this brilliant idea, instead of landing on a psalm, what if we looked at a season of, of David's life that produced multiple psalms? And so there's this, short window of David's life that you can find in 1 Samuel, starting at about verse, uh, chapter 19 through chapter 23. So it's about four or, five, four or five chapters, and all these events that happen in these four or five chapters, and what's interesting is that he wrote six different psalms during, the, at least six different psalms during that little, uh, little span of time. So I thought, what if, and here's my, here's my attempt today, what if today, instead of just looking at one psalm, we kind of wove together this storyline of David's you know, life from 1 Samuel 19 through 23. And every time he would go through one of these experiences, stop and interject, here's the psalm that he wrote coming out of that experience. And from that psalm, take a scripture or two out of that psalm, because we don't have time to do the whole thing. And then what are some lessons we can learn from his life, from his experience, from this psalm? How does that apply to our life? At the end, here's the goal that I want for us and some homework. And I'm going to do all that in the next little bit of time. (laughs) Now, here's what I will say, because we're covering this section of his life and six different psalms, there's no way that we're going to be able to look at all of it. So we're going to have a little, I'm going to need your help. We're going to have, for those of you raised in more of a traditional church or high church, we're going to have a liturgy today. And it's going to be a repeated liturgy. And this is how it's going to go. There are going to be times in my sermon today where we'll be talking about a psalm and I will say something along these lines. Oh, I would love to read it. And the people will say, but we don't have time. And I will respond, then read it on your own. Let's practice this. Oh, I would love to read this. But we don't have time. All right, no, no, don't get too eager. You're all to do this together. I would love to read this. Okay, you're going to have to be a little more enthusiastic or I will read it. Okay, let's try it again. I'd love to read this. Okay, then read it on your own. All right, so when we get to that point, I need you to help. That'll keep you awake, if nothing else. So let me give you a little backstory before the backstory. Starting in 1 Samuel 16, David is probably around the eighth grade. He's the eighth son of Jesse. They live in a little town called Bethlehem, and his job is taking care of the flocks, and he's out in the field with the sheep. An interesting thing happens this day in the little town of Bethlehem is that Samuel comes to town. This is not a normal thing. Now, the king is the authority political politically, but Samuel is the authority spiritually. And for him to come to town, especially a small little backwoods town like Bethlehem, was a big deal. So the prophet of God comes to this little town, and not only that, he comes to the house of Jesse. And he doesn't just come for lunch, he comes with a specific purpose because the Spirit of God has told him, you go to the house of Jesse and I will show you who is the next king of Israel because Saul had not, uh, had not done well in the eyes of the Lord. So 
Here comes Samuel. David's out in the field. He's not even invited in. He's left out of this, this gathering. Samuel comes to Jesse, says, I need to meet your sons. Going through, it's kind of like a star search. They're looking for the next king of Israel. And he goes through all these seven sons, and, and none of them are the one. And, and I can imagine Samuel thinking to himself, I heard clearly from God, go to Bethlehem, go to Jesse. It's one of his sons. And he says, is this it? I mean, I mean, they're good-looking boys, but do you have any other sons? And they were like, well, <laughs> there's the runt. You know, David, he's out in the field. And Samuel says, no one sit down. No one said, go get him. And they bring in this probably eighth grade David into this gathering that he wasn't invited to. And Samuel says, he's the one. And this is more than just Samuel giving him a pep talk saying, hey, you know what? Your future's so bright. You're going to wear shades. Just go after your dreams. Let me read this Dr. Seuss book. Oh, the places you'll go. No, it's way more than that. He takes out this vial, this flask of oil, and he pours it over David's head. And he says, I am anointing you. You will be the next king of Israel. Now, it's not going to happen for a while, but it's done right in front of all of his brothers and his family. And fast forward a few years later, maybe he's 16 years old. And now, as we've already read, he's employed in the palace playing his harp for the king, who does not know that David will be the next king. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, he's probably around, David's probably around 17 years old. It's a story we won't go into, but he confronts a big, real tall guy from Gath, a Philistine. Uh, anyone know his name? Goliath. Goliath. Good. Okay. So he confronts Goliath. He kills him. You, many of you know that story. We don't have time for that. Chapter 18, he's probably closer to 20 now. He's got a new BFF. It's a prince. His name is Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son, and they have such a close friendship. They enter into a covenant friendship where they've got this pact that they've got together. Not only that, but David has now become a, a warrior. And as he has these incredible military victories, there's a song written about him. As he comes into town, the women of the, of the town, they sing this song. And, and quite frankly, as I read the lyrics to this song, I think, yeah, maybe I could write a song after all. Because here are the lyrics to the song. <clears throat> Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Yeah, I know. That's it. That's the song. But, but they're, they're singing the song nonetheless. And it's an incredible time in his life as all of these things are happening. In chapter 18, verse 14, it says, in everything he did, everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. Now it gets even better. He gets to marry a princess. Her name is Michael. And even if I had the time, I would not read the story of what he had to do to get her as her hand in marriage. That one you're definitely on your own. And that's a story they did not tell us in Sunday school. But he marries Michael. She loves him. So now he's got, he's got this wife who's the princess of the king, his best friend, his son's brother-in-law, and all this is going on. And he just continues to grow in his military victories. In verse 30 of that chapter, it says, the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became well known. He is a rising star. Everything is going up and to the right. Everyone loves him. This wave is just swelling and he is riding this thing. But something's going to happen. And everything's going to change. And he will go from riding the wave to hiding in the cave. And it won't be just one cave. There'll be a couple. That he goes from this celebrated warrior musician to this hunted fugitive. How could this happen? 
Everyone loves him. The people sing songs about him. His warriors follow him into battle. The royal family loves him. He's married to the king's daughter. His best friend is his brother-in-law, who's the king's son. Everyone loves him, except for one. In verse 28, it says, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now, this isn't the first and only time that a father hasn't had the greatest view of his son-in-law, not good enough for his daughter. No pointing, no raising of hands. But this really isn't about his princess. This is about Saul. And it's more than just an awkward relationship between a father-in-law and a son-in-law that at Thanksgiving causes some difficult times around the dinner table when the father-in-law sends some little jabs, some underhanded comments about the son-in-law that are supposed to be funny but really have a cutting edge. It's more than that. Because his father-in-law is also the king, and the king is above the law, and whatever he says goes. So in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1, we read, Saul told his son Jonathan, you know the one who was best friends with David, the one who had had a pact, a covenant with David? Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. This isn't just uh, some kind of a loose comment made in, in, a, in a moment of rage. This was a directive from the king. I want my son-in-law killed. And you guys are going to do it. Now, from that point, that's all the backstory. From that point, at 1 Samuel 19 to chapter 23, these next five uh, chapters, his whole, David's whole life changes. But in the midst of it, he writes these psalms. So this is how it starts. Saul gives this directive. Go kill David. Michael, this doting wife, hears about what her father's doing. So she comes to David in their home and says, David, escape out the window and then we'll put some stuff in the bed with some goat hair, and it'll look like you're in there, and then when they come to get you, I'll tell them you're sick. So crawl out the window, probably under the cover of night, go out the window, we'll add some stuff to the bed, it'll look like you're there. Sure enough, the king's men come, and Michael says, oh, you know what, David's not feeling so, he's not feeling so well today. Could you come back? He can't play today. So they go back to the king, and, and the king says, I don't care how he's feeling, bring the whole bed in. So they go, remember, David's gone out the window, they've piled some stuff in the bed, so it looks like the, that he's in there. Like if you've ever seen those escaping from Alcatraz type movies, that's what they always do, right? Okay, forget the movies. This is what you did in middle school and high school. You crawled out the window and crammed a bunch of clothes, <laughs> clothes under the cover so your parents looked in and looked like you. Okay, that's happening. This is nothing new. You thought you were so original. You weren't. So they come, and then they realize this is like not even a person. It's an idol with goat hair. Saul is livid. He's yelling at his daughter, and she's lying. Well, David said he'd hurt me if I didn't do this kind of thing. So all this. Now here's David. He's on the run. His whole life's been disrupted. He has to escape from his own house out the back window. He leaves his wife, whom he loves. He leaves his home. He's not only had death threats on his life, he's had an attempt on his life. And in that context... He writes a psalm. He writes Psalm 59. And the preamble to Psalm 59 says this. For the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy. Side note, Psalm 57, 58, and 59 
are all written to the tune, Do Not Destroy. So maybe I could write a song. All right. To the tune of Do Not Destroy of David, a victim. When Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Oh, I would love to read this song. I'm my word. This is 11 o'clock. That is the weakest showing all weekend long. Man, I would love to read this song. Okay, read it on your own. But in this context, he writes this song. And then you begin to understand why he writes where he says, God, rescue me. You know, God, deliver me. And then he talks about his enemies that are chasing after him. And he, and he refers to them as these vicious, savage dogs. And he paints this picture of these savage dogs that are like low-life bottom feeders that scrounge around at night looking for something to eat. And at night when they don't find it, they're howling at night. And then he does this contrast. And he says, but I, I will sing of your strength. They howl at night, but in the morning, I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. Oh, my strength, I sing praise to you. You, oh God, are my fortress, my loving God. David has experienced horrible injustice from his father-in-law, the king. He's had danger in an attempt on his life. And his whole world has been disrupted as he has to leave his wife and his home, and he's on the run. But what I find from this is that even in the context of that kind of a situation, that worship was his lifestyle. He still sings in the morning. He still sings and worships God, his strength. Worship for him wasn't something just done in the synagogue or the tabernacle or the temple or just on the Sabbath. This is something he did every day. He worshiped God, and this is what we can learn from him. No matter what our circumstance, our situation, whatever life has or whatever anyone does to us, we can still have a life of worship where we thank God, where we praise him, where we pour our hearts out to him, where we worship him. Now, it goes on. He goes out the window, and he goes to a town called Ramah, where Samuel, the prophet is, the one who's anointed him, kind of his mentor, the, the spiritual authority. And he tells Samuel all the things that Saul has done and all the things that are, that are happening. And there's a little bit of a, a spiritual revival that takes place, actually even a change of Saul for a moment. And then Jonathan, his best friend, says, come on back home. David's still not so sure. And he says, well, let's test the waters on this feast. I'm not going to show up and let's see how your dad responds. And sure enough, Saul still wanted his son-in-law dead. So Jonathan has this signal for David, run, flee. My, my dad is still after you. So David leaves Ramah, leaves Samuel, and he goes to a town called Nob. Interesting name for a town. It's kind of like Weed, California. It's the one that you're happy to move away from. He goes to this town called Nob, and there's a priest there. Priest's name is Ahimelech. And he goes to Ahimelech and he says, Hey, I'm hungry, I'm on the run. You know, and, and Ahimelech says, Why are you all by yourself? You know, people know who David is. He says, I'm hungry, do you have anything to eat? And I don't have any, I'm unarmed, do you have a sword? Do you have anything? I, I kind of left in a hurry. I didn't pack a whole lot. Ahimelech says, Well, I've got some bread, but it's the consecrated bread. And, uh, and he goes, Yeah, give me that. He says, And we don't, we don't carry, but I tell you what, I've got a sword in the back. It's a big sword. It was a sword that belonged to a real tall guy, a real tall guy from Gath. 
you might remember him. His name was Goliath. David's very familiar with this sword. He says, I'll take the sword. Now, meanwhile, when all this is going on, there's a guy, his name is Doeg, and he's an Edomite. Edomites are normally like enemies of Israel, but Doeg, he oversees the flocks and the herds for Saul. He's observing all this. That'll come into play later. He's just watching all this happen. So now David leaves, and he goes, and this doesn't make any sense to me, he goes to Gath. David goes to Gath. Gath is Philistine country. Gath is where a really tall guy was from named Goliath, whom David killed, and he comes running back into town with a big sword that everyone recognizes. That looks like the sword of Goliath. Why on earth would David go to Gath? The only thing I can think of is he's, it's brilliant because no one would think he'd be stupid enough to go to Gath, so why would they ever go to Gath to look for him? Because no one would ever do that, but David does. And it seems that the king, King Achish, actually is sympathetic towards David and what he's got going on. But his men are not. They're like, King, do you not know who this is? It's like, David, have you not heard the two-lyric song that they sing about him? You know, Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands, one of which was our champion, Goliath. Do you not know who this is? Do you not see the sword? And, and, and David hears all this, and he knows they want him dead. 1 Samuel 21, 12 says, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. That is one story they never put on the flannel board when I was growing up in Sunday school or VBS. Oh, sure, we got David with a a sling, and we got David with a harp, and we got David with a crown. We don't have David like (laughs) like a Tasmanian devil slobbering all over himself, clawing on the wall. Which, a little side note, if you're ever in a meeting at work and you're backed into a corner, you don't know what to do, that's one option. That will not only get you out of the meeting, it'll get you out of a job. So he acts like this crazy guy. Uh, Akish says this. He said to his servants, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? <laughs> Must this man come into my house? <laughs> he says, do we not have enough? Do we have to import these guys? Don't we have enough of these guys anyway? And it works. And David's able to leave Gath without being harmed. Now he's thrown all dignity aside in a way. And at this moment, He writes a psalm. He writes Psalm 34. And the preamble to Psalm 34 says, Psalm of David, when he feigned insanity before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Oh, 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 I would love to read this psalm. Okay, read it on your own. But it's the most beautiful psalm, and you look at the context with which it was written. I mean, he starts off in the psalm and says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be upon my lips. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. In verse 18, it's a verse that I've read probably at every funeral I've ever done. He writes, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted 
and saves those who are crushed in spirit. But maybe the most beautiful line in the whole psalm, after what he's just experienced, he writes this in verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In the midst of all of this, fleeing his house, being on the lamb, death threats, attempts on his life, having to run, being hungry, borrowing a sword, being, acting like a, a wild man, and he still recognizes the goodness of God. What we sang about this morning, the goodness of God, because he knows that the goodness of God is not contingent on the situations of life. That life's hardships, life's difficulties, and what people do and the injustices and all the wrong and all the evil is not synonymous with who God is and his character. That God is good, even when the world is not. And I love what he says, taste and see. Now, we have five senses, right? Sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. He uses two senses, taste and see. It's like sensory, not just know and understand. That's important, but he says, I want it to be more than just a knowing and understanding. It's not just believe and proclaim. That's important, but it's more than knowledge. It's experience. And what he's saying here for himself and for his readers and for us is that he's not just giving us information about God and his goodness. He's inviting us into participation to taste and see. Let, let me try to illustrate it this way. Lucas, come help me quickly. Come on up here. Uh, Lucas, I've asked Lucas during worship if he had helped me. He has no idea what's happening. Let's thank Lucas for coming up here. Come on, Lucas, quickly. Right here. Okay. All right, Lucas, um, you're going to help me illustrate this. Um, I have on this plate um, a, a plate of cookies. Now, these aren't any ordinary cookie. This is chocolate chip and salted caramel cookie. This is an amazing cookie. And these cookies, they're baked just right, so they don't snap, they bend, and you can just like mm, sink your teeth into them. And as you eat these cookies, they're such a great compliment. The chocolate chips with the caramel, mm, it's like a completion. But there's also the contrast, because it's not just caramel, it's salted caramel. So you have the sweet and the salty, the chocolate, the caramel, and the cookie, the texture, the taste. This is an amazing cookie. Now, Lucas, I want you to know and understand that this is a good cookie. That's why I told you about it. I want you to believe and proclaim that this is a good cookie. And he can know and understand all, I can tell him all about this cookie. He can believe it. But Lucas, what I'd really like is for you to taste and see that this cookie's good. Take one and give it to your sister. Right. Thanks, buddy. All right. See, see what David does. What David does, he says, I don't want you just to know about this. I don't want you to just believe about this. I want you to experience this. He experiences it, even in the midst of life's hardships. So he, he acts like this wild man, and he leaves Gath. And then it says this. Uh, 
in uh, 22, verse 1, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, this isn't the only time, because in chapter 24, he goes to the cave in Engedi. Oh, and I would love for us to cover that one. So you have to read it on your own. But at this point, he's at the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. You think, oh, this is great. David's family is there. They want to support him. They want to be with him. They want to kind of encourage him. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe Saul is so after, so bent about getting David, he's been putting pressure on them as his family. Maybe he's been putting threats to them. Maybe they're running for their life. Maybe they're down there a little bit ticked off. David, we had to leave our flocks. We had to leave our little town of Bethlehem. We had to leave our homes to come live in this cave with you because whatever's going on between you and the king, it's affecting us. And maybe they're not real happy about this at all. And there's some other people that come as well. Verse two, and all those who are in distress or in debt, or discontented, gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Men who joined him, not because they saw his leadership and his character and wanted to follow him. Men who were disgruntled. Men who were desperate. Men who were in debt. We have no food. We have no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. There's nothing going right in, so they join him. And in this, while David is in the cave and his family's there and all these disgruntled people around him, he writes a psalm. He writes Psalm 57. And in the preamble, it says, for the director of music, to the tune of, here it is, do not destroy, of David, a mictum, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Oh, oh, I would love for us to be able to read this. So you'll have to read it on your own. But in this psalm, he talks about what we sang about today in that new song, how God is his foundation. And he talks about how he continues to worship. He says, I awaken my soul to worship you. I awaken my harp to worship you. I awaken the dawn to worship you. And he writes these incredible words in this psalm. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. But he doesn't stop there. He writes another psalm. He writes Psalm 142, and the preamble to Psalm 142 says, a masquil of David when he was in the cave. This one's a prayer. And oh, I love if we were able to be able to read this one. So you have to read that on your own. But he cries out, and he pours out his complaint. And then in verse 4, he says this, look at my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge no one cares for my life. Well, wait, David, your family, those 400 men, he says, no, they don't care. They're trying to save their own skin. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And there's something we've seen in each of the little segments of Psalm that we've written, or that we've read, is this one common denominator when he talks about his refuge. Remember, he's been in Gath, in the cave of Adullam, Nob, and Rama. He's been with the prophet, and he's been with the priest, and the king Achish, and he's been with his family, and been with his friends. But what he recognizes is that his refuge is not a place, but in the presence of the Lord. It's no one else. It's in the presence of the Lord. It's not in the cave. It's not in the country of Gath. It's not off in Rama. It's, it's not at Nob. It's with God. That's his refuge. And there's one other little detail that could easily be looked over, because he also quickly, he goes to, to the king of Moab at a place called Mitzpah. 
And he says to him, will you take care of my parents? Can, can they stay here? So here's the weight of caring for his parents as well. Well, back at Saul, Saul's asking his guys, why can't anyone produce David? Was well, he promising you all kind of stuff? And no one seems to know anything except there's this guy named Doeg. Doeg the Edomite, he saw something a while back. And Doeg says, hey, Saul, I was with Ahimelech, and I saw him giving David bread and Goliath's sword. So Saul and his men go to Ahimelech and said, hey, we understand you were helping David out. And Ahimelech says, listen, Saul, I don't know what the problem is. David is for you. I mean, he supports you. He hasn't said anything against you. He's on your side. And it, it just angers Saul so much. He says to his men, kill the priests, kill all the priests. Fortunately, they're like, we're not going to do that. They recognize their leader is this despot who's just way out of control. So he looks to Doeg, the Edomite, not the Israelite. Historically, enemies of Israel. He says, Doeg, you do it. And he does. He not only kills Ahimelech, he kills 85 priests and their wives and their children and their babies and their flocks and their herds. Only one priest escapes and he runs to David and he lets David know what's happened. And David carries this heavy weight of responsibility, this burden of all oh, this is happening to so many people just because of me. Because Saul's after me. And in the context of all that, he writes Psalm 52. The preamble of Psalm 52 says this. For the director of music, a masculine of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Oh, oh, I would love for us to read Psalm 52. Okay, so you have to read it on your own. But in this one, and you see the context, after what has just happened to all these priests and their family, David begins to talk about the justice of God, how he will strike back how this didn't go unnoticed. And God, the sovereign God, the sovereign judge, he's going to take, he's going to take uh, action on this. And then David turns and he makes a comment about himself. In verse 8, he says, But I, I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. What a cool picture. But why an olive tree? I mean, Psalm 92 says, I flourish like a palm tree. <laughs> That's better. Palm tree, beach, shade, dates, the whole thing, coconuts, whatever. Psalm 92, he talks about being like a cedar of Lebanon. That's fantastic. The strength of the cedar of Lebanon. Why an olive tree? And those of you who've been to the Middle East and, and, and the Mediterranean, you know, well, there are olive trees everywhere. Yes, yes, yes. But maybe it wasn't just a, a commonality. Maybe there was something more. Why would he say, I flourish like an olive tree? I did a little bit of research, and I found that this out actually out of the Smithsonian Magazine, not a Christian commentary, out of the Smithsonian Magazine, said this. Olive trees will produce loads of fruit in the cruelest of heat out of the driest of gravel. And not only that, the trees thrive in places where others may wither. And olive trees don't only thrive, but they thrive century after century. The oldest olive trees have watched kingdoms rise and fall and have lived through a hundred droughts and still produce fruit every fall. And maybe David says, that's why I chose the olive tree. Because I'm living through a drought right now. And the cruel heat and the, the gravel that my life is planted in. And yet I can thrive. 
And I can flourish when others would not. And whenever we go to, to Israel and Jerusalem, there's a church called the Church of All Nations. It's also called the Basilica of the, of the Agony. It's right at the, at the foot of the, of the Mount, of, of, um, Mount of Olives right there by the Garden of Gethsemane and the foot of the Kidron Valley. And just outside of that church, there's this old, old olive tree. I've got a picture of it for you. This old, old olive tree. And they believe that this olive tree may be about 2,000 years old. And yet it's still growing. It's still producing fruit. It still has leaves. It's possible, it's possible that Jesus saw this tree when it was just a sapling, when he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the thing about olive trees is that they're evergreens. They never drop their leaves. They just stay green all year round. And then every fall, they produce fruit. And I wonder, when David uses this picture of an olive tree and knowing that they last and they continue, I wonder if he thinks back to that Psalm 1. We covered this in week two. It's like the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaves never wither, and whatever he does prospers. And David says, I don't even have to be planted by a stream of water. If I'm in the house of my God, I can thrive when others don't. I can flourish. My leaves will be green, and I can be fruitful. And maybe thinking of Psalm 23, to be dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. In the last half of verse 8, he says, But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. This, listen, this is my goal for every single one of us. That no matter what we go through, no matter what hardship or difficulty or injustice or drought, whatever we face from the world, from life, from relatives, from others, that we would be like an olive tree, even in the harshest conditions, continuing to flourish, continuing to have life, continuing to bear fruit. And he says, my trust is in the Lord forever and ever because his trust is in that which is not dictated by circumstances. God is where he puts his trust. Now, I have to stop there because you've struggled with this liturgy, I've gone longer in this service than the others. <laughs> I'm putting that on you. <laughs> we didn't even get to chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. And at the end of chapter 23, he writes another psalm. He writes uh, Psalm 54. And I would love for us to be able to study that today. <laughs> so you have to read that on your own. At that point, he's about 25 years old. And the next five years don't get any better. In the next five years, his mentor, Samuel, the spiritual leader, the rock of their country, dies. In addition to that, his evil father-in-law takes Michael, his wife, away from him and gives her to another man. He loses his wife. His father-in-law continues to pursue him, continues to try to kill him, continues to chase him, even though he continues to serve him. At one point, he goes to the Philistines, and they reject him. And then, and then there's, the, there's this incredible thing that happens in, 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 uh, in, in Ziklag. And I, oh, I would love for us to go into that one. So you have to read that on your own. 
But he and his men go off, and some marauders come in and burn the town to the ground and take all the women and the children. And when they come back, we read this in 1 Samuel 30, and David was greatly distressed. For the people, which are his men who are fighting with him, the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Look at this line. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is what he learned to do as a young man. When there's no external help, when there's not a synagogue around, when there's not a pastor, when there's not a worship band, when there's not family, when there's not friends, when things aren't going well, he knows how to strengthen himself in the Lord. And if we can learn that, how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, that no matter what life throws at us, that we would have worship as our lifestyle, that we would not just know about the goodness of God, we would experience, we would taste and see that God is good, that we would find our refuge in him and in him alone, and our trust would be with him forever. And then, then, then we will be like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. That's my goal for us. So here's the homework I want to give to you. The homework is this. This week, if you so choose to take this homework, I want to challenge you to write your own psalm. We're not going to sing it, so don't worry about that. It's not going to be in the Bible 2.0. It's not going to be published. This is just you pouring out your heart in response to where you are in life. And for some of you, things are going fantastic, and it's going to be one of those give thanks to the Lord for his goodness endures forever kind of psalms, and that's great. And for some of you, it's going to be a little bit like Psalm 88 that we looked at last week. But I would encourage you to incorporate what we've seen in David. That even in the midst of the reality that we would continue to worship our God, experience his goodness, take refuge in him, and trust him forever.